Everyone deserves to enjoy a McRib at least once in their lifetime. Because when you're this saucy and tangy and tasty, a life without one creates a serious case of FOMO. The McRib is back. Don't miss the classic you've been craving. Get a McRib, filet of fish or Big Mac and get another for a dollar or mix and match. Prices and participation may vary. Valid for item of equal or lesser value. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, this is former NFL tight end Clay Harbor coming to you with Prize Picks. Prize Picks is a daily fantasy sports app that's super fun. You can turn $10 into $250 with just a few clicks. And with the prize picks reboot policy, your entries stays in play if your player gets injured in the first half and does not return in the second. Crazy, right? Go to prizepicks.com slash believe, that's B-L-E-A-V, and enter code B-L-E-A-V for your first deposit match up to $100. This is episode number 21, and we are going to the top, to the top of the mountain with the very first female active duty soldier to summit Mount Everest. Welcome to The Recovering Athlete. I am Cletus Coffey, a former professional and world champion athlete. If you're like me, your success on the field as an athlete did not translate over to success in life off the field. In fact, I've struggled for years. The purpose of the show is to let you know you're not alone. We are bringing you current and former athletes, coaches, and other inspiring people and messages to help you recover the high you once had as an athlete and learn how to align it with today's world of entrepreneurship, career, relationships, health and wellness, and beyond. Thank you for taking the time to hang out with me. Now let's dive in and learn how other athletes have made this transition and are making a much greater impact off the field. Recovering athlete family, so good to have you here on this episode, and I am jazzed to have Elise Ping Medvigi as a guest here, and I got a chance to to hear her talk live, and I was really inspired. And, and you know me, I'm trying to get unique stories, uh, influential people, inspirational people who have something that we can gain and, and how we can learn and evolve as former athletes to make a bigger impact in life than we ever did in sport. And she was someone who's doing so much in sport, so much outside of sport, She's doing so much for our country and the purpose that she has behind it, I think was really powerful. And she's been featured on Good Morning America amongst many other media outlets for some of her accomplishments as the first female active duty soldier to summit Mount Everest. So there's so much wound up in this episode that we can really learn from, uh, from drive and focus and resiliency and determination that uh, Elise shares in the various elements of her life where she is really dialed in. So a really powerful episode and lots of concepts and lessons that, that we can learn from here. So anyway, let's dive in. Enjoy the conversation. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Recovering Athlete Podcast. And my guest here today is someone who I just recently met, but I got to tell you, I am excited to to learn more about because there's there are people who are uh, who have done amazing things in their lives and done amazing things in their sport, and then there's someone who has the intention to make a greater impact outside of their particular sport or their work that uh, I'm super curious and, and wanting to learn more about. So, uh, Elise, I'm so excited to have you. Thank you so much for for taking the time to join us. Of course, thank you for having me on. So just a, a, 
help us understand because there's there's so many amazing pieces to you and and the the things that you've done up to this point. First and foremost, we grew up in almost the, the same neighborhood town in, in Sonoma yeah. County, <laughs> California. So uh, we definitely have a, a strong connection there to, to that community. Uh, but what I'd love for you to do is just give us a little background because I met you on a panel for women's at a breakfast for women's leadership. And I'd love for you just just to give us a little bit of a snapshot as to, you know, you uh, obviously, growing up in in a very active household, and kind of where that's taken to you in your career, but also as an athlete. Sure. So, as you know, I grew up in a very small, very liberal town uh, in well, about twenty minutes from from uh, from the coast. Um, I, you know, I'd always always pictured myself working on the international stage and kind of doing. Um, working for more than myself. So I went to, uh, to West Point when I was 17, you know, left that, that small town, uh, and commissioned in, in 2012. Um, at that time there was only about 3% of women that were in, uh, in field artillery. So to challenge myself, I, I really wanted to see if I was capable of, of, uh, of doing that, of fulfilling that role. So, uh, I commissioned into the artillery and spent a couple years, um, essentially spearheading female integration into combat. So, and that took me around the world from the border of North Korea uh, all the way out to, to Afghanistan uh, and then many, many posts throughout the, the country uh, and then was selected for special operations force. And, uh, and here I am and I'm in grad school in D.C. now. So I've kind of bounced around the planet, you could say. Now, what, what inspired you to do? Because you've, it seemed like you'd, you went after a lot of firsts and being involved in artillery and just me going through and learning a little bit more about, about your career. You, you led a lot of uh, male units. What was that always something inside of you that, Hey, I'm going to go out and, and break the mold here and, and be a first. Um, in a way, I mean, I wasn't looking for the title. I was just looking to push my own capabilities. So both in the military and then in um, mountaineering, which is something I was introduced to at a young age. Um, I just, in these austere environments, that's where you learn the most about yourself, where you learn the most about your capabilities um, when you get outside of your comfort zone. So I, uh, I try to stay outside of my comfort zone as, as much as I can. Um, but yeah, I think my parents were probably uh, the best source of where my motivation came from. My father was a career army officer. He actually just retired a couple years ago. Uh, and both my parents were avid outdoorsmen. So I was constantly drug up mountains and, uh, and hills when I was a young kid. So, all right. So being in, a, in an active household and, and uh, you know, being drug up mountains is definitely getting outside your comfort zone for sure. Yeah. Uh, what that look like? Was it, were you kicking and screaming in the early stage or were you someone who said, yeah, dad, mom, let's do this. Um, generally the, the latter, uh, although I won't pretend there were some very difficult hikes where, uh, I wanted to quit, but my father was always, oh, come on, keep up. So I think I, I told this joke at the, the leadership panel that you met me on, but there were several times in Sebastopol, California, especially where we would be doing uh, hill sprints, my father and, and I, and people would shout out like, that's child abuse, uh, as, as I tried to keep up with my dad going up the hill. So I think just being pushed, learning to push yourself, learning perseverance at a young age is just essential uh, when you're a little kid. 
fascinating. You and your dad were doing wind sprints up mountains. We Pretty were. Incredible. <laughs> and what we, was he being an avid outdoorsman and, and someone who likes to scale mountains? Was this part of his training and he just got you involved or was there uh, something else, a, a purpose behind it? He just always liked going out into the mountains, always liked backpacking, uh, never did it competitively. Uh, but in the army, you have to maintain a certain level of physical fitness. So I think he was trying to kill two birds with one stone by keeping himself in shape and then teaching his daughter how to how to push herself as well. So um, he had done Rainier and some 14ers uh, throughout his life, but never, um, never really got into high altitude climbing like um, my mother and I did. Well, I got to tell you, I live in the shadow of Rainier, and there's nothing about that that uh, says not high altitude, because that sucker is big. So I can't imagine <laughs> that being considered not high altitude. Uh, but so... Objective term. For sure, for sure. Uh, so you made your way to West Point, and you started to make your, kind of make your mark in in your career uh, serving us, and... I said this in the beginning, but I think I speak for all of us in thanking you for your service and your dedication to the country. Uh, and uh, there's um, there's a, a lot to be said to obviously having the the wherewithal to want to go and do that, but also to to get after it like you did. Uh, but you also when we talk about some of the firsts that you've done, you've also did another first. And as I understand, being the first female active duty uh, to summit Mount Everest. Tell me about Everest and uh, tell me, well, first, let me, before we get to Everest, let's let's make that the the climax here. How did you, obviously your father was in mountaineering and you took hold of it. Where, when did you become doing that more on a, on a serious basis or really wanting to, to um, do that, you know, take that athletic pursuit? Of course. Um, I'd say when I was about 19, I started really pushing myself into high altitude climbing. So being the sassy teenager that I was, my uh, my mother had done Kilimanjaro for her 50th birthday. And I was in West Point at the in, at the time. So I didn't, they don't really give you summer vacations when you're at West Point. You only get a couple days or so. Uh, but I managed to fit in uh, Kilimanjaro between going to American Airborne School and French Airborne School in, in France. I bounced down to to uh, Tanzania, well, they say Tanzania in, in Tanzania, but Tanzania in English, uh, and, and climbed it faster and a harder route than my mom. So there was always um, a little bit of com- competition in our family. So we just kind of kept going up over the years. Um, she did Everest Base Camp for her 68th birthday, and then I went and did Everest. Uh, <laughs> so I've, again, I've won the family competition. I think it's officially over. And my mom doesn't really do much, uh, say, high altitude climbing anymore. She just kind of treks around the mountains, which I don't quite understand, but to each their own. What, what is what is considered high altitude climbing? What, what What's uh, the, the barrier? Again, a subjective term. Uh, some people will say anything over 14 or higher, 14,000. Uh, for me, I really start to feel it at about 20. I can tell that I'm you know, my breathing is uh, a little bit uh, more difficult and, um, you know, I, I'm acclimating. So between 19 and 20, I'd say 1,000 uh, feet is, is high altitude for me. What, what other peaks have you summited? 
so I kind of inadvertently uh, did five of the seven summits. So the seven summits are the seven highest peaks on every continent. Uh, and when I was a young climber, especially coming out of West Point, you don't get much of a paycheck uh, when you're a cadet. It's only a couple hundred dollars uh, a month. So I kept saving everything that I was making. And my older climbing partners, who were, of course, employed and, and had a lot more money, uh, were kind of chasing the summit summits. So I sort of tagged along being a young kid. Uh, so I've done everything from Aconcagua to Elbrus, uh, and then peaks throughout the Rocky Mountains. I was stationed in Colorado Springs, which was wonderful when it came to training. I'd get up at two in the morning every weekend after long days during the week uh, of work and and just go out and climb and do a 14er with a couple of my buddies. And then we ice climb in the afternoon. Um, so yeah, I've done quite a bit uh, throughout the, the U.S. and then bounced down to Ecuador. Um, Mexico is great when it comes to getting altitude really quickly. Orizaba and Itza are um, very accessible from Mexico City. So whenever I was training, I'd uh, just fly down to Mexico City for a couple days, sometimes a week, depending on what grad school allowed uh, to train. Wow. So do you have a desire to complete the seven summits? Oh, people say I might as well. Um, I, I might as well. We'll see. I've always wanted to climb in uh, Antarctica. Antarctica is kind of, when I was a young kid, I'll, I'll back up a little. When I was a young kid, I always wanted to be Ernest Shackleton when I grew up. Or Indiana Jones. I was kind of split between the two. So I've, I like to think that I'm some sort of um, mix in the middle these days. Uh, but Antarctica was always, um, always had this allure to me. I, I always wanted to go uh, and, and climb down there. So Mount Vinson is on my list. Unfortunately, with regulations, you it's very difficult to get down uh, and just solo or do um, traditional alpine climbing. You really have to be on a commercial expedition to get a permit. And those are about $40,000. So oh, wow. we'll see. Wow. Uh, okay, so... Talk me through, let's talk Everest for a second, because it seems to be, we've all read the books, we've all watched the movies. Uh, so I'll, dramatic, aren't they? <laughs> so dramatic. And yeah, yeah, I mean, in, in the, the stories that are out there about this iconic place on Earth, um, tell me your Everest story in, you know, in obviously just the, the high overview outline, but I'd love to learn. How, how did it go? How did it come about? And how to go? So when I was younger, I kind of Everest was on my list, so to speak, but it wasn't high on my list. No pun intended. Uh, I always I wanted to do Choi Oyu and Shishapangma first, which are two uh, eight thousand meter peaks in Tibet in the Himalayas, uh, and wanted to kind of train a little bit before I, I got to Everest. But Everest, um, the opportunity essentially fell into my lap when I was. Uh, you know, just switching over to the special operations force for the army. Uh, and it was kind of, it was too good to turn down. It was a really great mission. It spoke, um, you know, it was near and dear to my heart. We were raising awareness for um, post-traumatic stress disorder mm. in the forces. And I just returned from Afghanistan where uh, we had lost a number of soldiers, um, particularly two in my own unit um, 
from uh, IEDs. We were getting blown up quite a bit in Kandahar. So this was an opportunity for me to to give back, essentially. Um, so I took two pictures of the soldiers we lost to the summit for their families and then mailed it back to, uh, to one of the mothers afterwards. So... Uh, Everest was a challenge for me um, that I couldn't turn down, but again, the mission was was even bigger, and that's what kind of drew me to it. So, uh, Everest story. So we did we did the north side, which is more difficult. Um, generally, all those Hollywood films. Of course, that, why not? Why not do the most difficult yeah, side? Do the highest mountain. <laughs> do the hardest route. Oh, it's not the hardest route, um, but it's of of the two um, that. Basically, everyone does when they when they climb Everest. It is is the harder of the two. Mm-hmm. So the north side of any mountain, um, or I should say any mountain in the northern hemisphere, is going to be um, just more austere. It's more um, exposed. Uh, it doesn't get as much sunlight, so it's it's generally a lot. Um, the conditions are a lot harsher. That's what North Face, the the company, is named after. Mm-hmm. Um, so we wanted to we wanted to avoid the Kumbu Icefall, which I don't know if you've seen. I'm sure you've seen some of the Everest um, movies. It's essentially like playing Russian roulette with your life. These big ice racks. I mean, ice falls um, or ice flows essentially are are constantly moving bodies. So again, it's just kind of a matter of time before um, before conditions will change. And when conditions change, it's uh, be very dangerous um, for a falling Serac. So uh, we did the north side. Um, there were three major um, obstacles, I guess you could say, on the north side. They're, they're called the three steps. Uh, so they're essentially between 20 and 60 foot rock faces. So you're essentially rock climbing at, at about 28,000 feet. Uh, and going up is... I don't know. It took the wind out of me a little bit. It wasn't, it was a little, it was hard. Um, but you couldn't see the thousand foot drop off in the bodies uh, below. So that, that was nice. Going up was, uh, wasn't bad. Uh, but coming down, once you've summited it, you're tired. Um, you know, you're probably running low on, on water and, and fuel. Uh, so coming down, um, it's a blind exit. So you're, you're literally, you know, walking down uh, backwards. So it's a little, it's a little tiring. I'd say that was probably the hardest part of the whole route. Wow. And on your way down, you get a better look of what you missed on the way up. It sounds like. You do. And you have to be very careful. Every, uh, every step is very deliberate. So uh, I was very careful to make sure that I, I survived and, and came back. But you got to stay engaged every step of the way. You know, I heard you say something on the panel that, that uh, you were on where you said, when you get to the, to the top, you're only halfway there. And mm-hmm. I just, I, I mean, just such a, an example of, of, of life and, and the different lessons that, that can be brought from that. And you did all this hard work. You got to the to the top, and yet that wasn't even the hard part. Nor were yep. you even over. And yep. I just that was really powerful how how you played that uh, how you played that out. Yeah, uh, Seattle local actually at Vestures. Uh, I'm sure you probably he's the grandfather of mountaineering, very famous and accomplished mm-hmm. climber. Uh, likes to say that going up is optional, coming down is mandatory. 
So I like to keep that in mind whenever you're on a mountain, as well as that the summit again is is only halfway. You can't expand, you know, expend all your energy going up. You got to save quite a bit of it for uh, for downhill. Mm-hmm. Right. And and as far as uh, any of the elements catch up to you while you're up there, I mean, was there I mean, other than just some of the difficulty of the climb? Did the elements, you know, lack of oxygen or weather cause any challenges? Uh, so we had all my whole team got food poisoning right before we went on our last rotation up. So uh, most people don't quite understand this that don't climb. You're actually climbing a mountain three or four times before you go up for the summit. So you're establishing uh, camps on your way up, but you're also, of course, acclimating. So when we, we came down uh, Everest on the north side, so big that we actually have two base camps. So we came down to Chinese base camp, which was at 17,000 feet. And I still remember being handed this tomato soup because that was the, <laughs> that's when things started to go downhill pretty quick. Uh, I had the worst food poisoning. I don't, I don't, I'd like to call it food poisoning. I'm not quite sure what it was, but it, it knocked me out for about five days. And thank God the weather wasn't very good. Um, so I could sit in my tent just puking my brains out for, uh, <laughs> for a couple days. I didn't eat anything. Um, I was trying to keep liquids down and then the rest of my team kind of slowly got it as well. But I like to think that, or not like to think I unfortunately was patient zero. Uh, so my team actually, we, I sent them up and said, don't, don't wait for me, go for the, go for the summit. Because, um, as I explained on the panel, twice a year, the jet stream will stop for just about a week or so hitting the summit. So every Everyone that's on the mountain will scurry up summits and then get down as fast as they can. Uh, so we really timing is is everything in the Himalayas um, and, and and on many mountains. So uh, by the time I was feeling better, they were already several thousand feet above me. So I had to play catch up, uh, and I did a couple day climb in one day, which again took quite a bit out of me since I had been eating for a while. Um, but I eventually catched up. Everyone else got food poisoning. We, we stopped for a bit and, uh, we ended up summiting on the very last day of the season. So it was quite, quite late. Uh, but you asked if conditions caught up to us and they definitely did. Uh, the jet stream was coming in on the descent. So I remember sitting on the summit thinking it's a little windier than it probably should be. Um, and we were fortunate enough to have Sherpas because it was such a um, large commercial expedition that we were on. Uh, and my Sherpa, the Sherpa that was um, tasked to, to climb with me, ended up being such a blessing. His name was Chow Wang. He didn't speak any English. So we just kind of communicated through um, charades, so to speak. So you know, water and, and stop. And we had a couple um, hand gestures that we, we both recognized. It made it a little more difficult when it was at night and you couldn't see anything, but uh, we did the best we could. And we both climbed at the same pace, which was wonderful. So we could literally go up without taking very many breaks uh, because we both were, again, pretty. I get cold really quick because I'm, uh, I'm pretty lean. So taking breaks for me can be kind of um, disastrous because that's when the frost nip starts to catch up. So I've got to stay. But so when we got to the summit, Chao Wang you know, was 
trying to tell me we got to go down. The uh, the weather conditions are, are, are deteriorating pretty quickly. So we, we booked it going down. We actually went all the way from the summit, which is at 29,000 feet, all the way down to 21,000 feet in one day, which is quite a bit for a descent. I mean, that was um, it's about 22 hours of, of climbing. Wow. Which wow. doesn't sound like a lot, but when it's when you're in the the depth zone, which is above twenty six thousand feet, you know it's it can take a lot out of you. It was just, I was a little tired by the end of the day. Yeah, and when you're in that zone, are you seeing um, the oxygen tanks being disposed? I mean, just I, I hear the stories of the trash that's on Everest because everyone's chucking stuff and. It's true. Uh, you try to do the best you can, uh, but essentially, I mean, they have a huge um, human fecal uh, problem, poop problem on Everest that they've been trying to clean up over the years. Uh, but when it comes to oxygen, uh, Nepal, as well as uh, the Chinese government, have done a really good job lately of incentivizing people to bring their own trash down. So Sherpas, um, many of who have climbed Everest five, six, you know, some up to a couple dozen times, um, are being paid. I think they were offering about 60 U.S. dollars per oxygen tank to come down. So what you see is a bunch of Sherpas piling all these oxygen tanks into their backpack on the descent, and they're making they're making a lot of money. So that definitely has helped with the cleanup problem. Um, but I never, you know, I brought all my oxygen back down with me, um, and then Chow Wing was just kind of pulling old oxygen bottles along the route and uh, filling his bag. So we had to stop a couple times on the descent so that he could <laughs> he could scavenge, so to speak. But, right, right. And the, the people that unfortunately don't make it on the way down, are there, I mean, they're still still there? Uh, yeah. Uh, they are, although, again, the both governments have, um, it, it kind of is situationally dependent. Mm -hmm. Dragging 200 pounds of dead weight on these routes all the way down is, is just not doable. So a lot of the times, not to be morbid, but uh, mm -hmm. the bodies will just be pushed off. Uh, so you can see, different colored uh, down suits on the way down. Um, a lot of the time, the one, a lot of the times the ones that aren't pushed down will be used again. This is kind of morbid, but as trail markers, uh, because there's no real way to, to mark the trail in a lot of ways. Um, they're kind of waypoints, so to speak. So I remember on the North side, I was looking for, um, he's called green boots. He's a, a Indian climber that died in the late nineties. Uh, kind of as a, a waypoint for, okay, now I'm a third of the way up and this is what's coming next, so to speak. Uh, but he had been pushed off a couple of years before. So it, um, yeah, he wasn't there. So again, it's kind of, it's difficult if you're not in these environments to understand uh, that, oh my gosh, why would you be using sure. human beings to, but as a climber, that's um, sort of a way to contribute too, that I'm I'm on the mountain. I can help future climbers if, if I don't make it down. So mm -hmm. the side, again, it's so uh, exposed that generally bodies will fall off naturally. So Yeah. And I think I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I also heard you say that it wasn't the most difficult climb you've done. Oh, so a mountain is dictated, of course, by its altitude, but also by its pitch, by its conditions. Uh, so some of the most challenging mountains, actually, I've done are solos in 
the Colorado Rockies, uh, where I'm up to my to my waist, um, punching through the snow, making my own route. Uh, you know, it was long, tiring days uh, when you're out there by yourself. So uh, I think those have probably been some of the most difficult. Everest, of course, was was a good challenge, uh, especially coming out of one of the tents on the way down. My oxygen um, canister, which rides on your back. Uh, the knob got switched off, so I got to feel what it felt like uh, for a few minutes to not have any oxygen uh, in those conditions. I remember being very confused and finally sitting down and, oh, my oxygen is off. <laughs> it's on zero. So, and, and kind of putting, it's almost like being drunk, essentially. You're kind of in this stupor, this um, this state where you recognize your cognitive abilities are deteriorating very quickly and you have to again very quickly figure out what's uh what the problem is wow yeah so that so you got to experience what that was like very uh, and a little bit terrifying too so i usually again i'm i'm a fast climber i have to be for how small i am to stay warm uh so when you know i start stumbling a little bit um you know i mentally i'm there enough to recognize there's an issue what's mm -hmm. going on so and I remember actually it, it happened going uh, up. I think it was was it about twenty eight thousand feet. Um, Chow Wang, my my Sherpa and I were climbing so fast that we were actually going to summit at about five in the morning, which I've a, anyone who's climbed knows that it doesn't really make for such a great you know you can't get photos you can't enjoy the summit if it's dark <laughs> if you're if it's in the middle of the night. Uh, and just to put it in perspective, most people summit at about noon or one o'clock is the turnaround point. So that kind of gives you an idea of we were, you know, we were having a good morning. We were going yeah. pretty fast. Uh, so we actually did have to take a couple breaks going up so that we summited right as the sun was coming up, which was just beautiful. There was nobody else on the summit. It was just uh, me and him. The rest of the team was was coming up behind. Um, and that's another thing that's kind of hard for, for people down at sea level to understand. Sometimes you really, you just can't stay with your team the whole time. It is dangerous in terms of frost nip uh, to adjust your pace based on other people. So you really got to, it's kind of, I don't want to say it's every man for themselves, which is a very different lesson than you learn in the military. Um, but sometimes you just do the best you can. Mm -hmm. So at on a particular day and time, uh, you were the highest per person at the ceiling of the earth all by yourself. Yes, sir. Except for the International Space Station, perhaps. But right. on planet, perhaps. Yeah. On planet. Fascinating. And, yeah. Chimborazo actually is a mountain down in Ecuador. That's... Um, the mountain that's technically the highest in the world. It's the highest from the center of the, the earth. So sure. Everest is not the highest. Uh, it's it's uh, Chimborazo, but Chimborazo sits at about 20,000 feet, if I remember correctly. Right. Wow. So now how do you, and this is something that's, that's passionate to me and, and definitely our audience here, but I, I mean, just the, the preparation for Everest, the the actual event doing it, and, you know, I relate it to some of the Olympians that I work with or professional athletes who they actually make it to the pros and they get that jersey and they've worked so hard and they go, that was it. Like, or they've got the Olympic medal and, and there's that they're still not f fulfilled in the actual process of getting the, you know, not in the process, but in getting the medal. 
And it's a, it's a challenge because I know as athletes, we often look at the results as our measurement for success or how we um, judge ourselves when in fact it is the process, it is the journey. And I just, I think mountaineering is such a, a great um, uh, way to communicate that uh, because it, it's an actual journey to the summit. It is, yep. And I certainly am guilty of, of the same thing. I remember on the descents thinking, what's next? <laughs> what am I getting? You know, it's that, um, it's kind of your self-esteem is based on pride and you really have to get away from, uh, from just looking at your accomplishments. As, as you said, you have to enjoy the journey going up. Uh, and that's something that I've, I've learned the hard way over the years. It's, it's taken a while for me to, instead of just, um, you know, looking at accomplishments as a measure of my success, um, learning it, looking at attributes and looking at, um, at the journey, at, at the process, what I've gone through. Um, so yeah, yeah, you would ask training for, for Everest. So I was again, fortunate enough to be stationed in Colorado Springs. Um, so I had the Rocky mountains, only a couple hour drive outside of, in my backyard. Uh, and I also had the air force Academy. So uh, because I was active duty and then it kind of got a good chuckle out of West Point, the U.S. Military Academy is, of course, a competitor with the Air Force Academy. Uh, they let me train in their high altitude. Um, I'm trying to remember what the name of it is. Essentially, their training vault. So they had a room that they used to pump full of oxygen for their uh, Division One athletes. And they did the opposite for me. So I would give them a couple hour heads up, like, hey, I'm coming in, I'm going to train, uh, and tell them what altitude I wanted to go to. And they would suck all the oxygen out of the room. Uh, and there was a treadmill and a, um, a bike in the room. So I could go up to up to 25,000 feet. It would take a couple hours again for that amount of oxygen to be sucked out of the room for me to train there. Uh, and it was, um, perhaps it, it's, uh, it's more of a placebo effect cause it's, it's mental, but I thought, uh, it was, it was good for me to, um, for my blood to practice, um, thickening with hemoglobin for what I was about to do. So only being at 23, you know, 24,000 feet for a few hours, um, while training didn't maybe have long-term effects. It was, um, I thought it was good preparation. I had no problem acclimating at, on Everest. Um, I never really felt the effects of the altitude, although I did make a video, a short video, um, for one of my climbing buddies who was um, behind me on the route, and I wasn't sure if he was going to make it up. Um, and you can tell that my cognitively I'm a little bit slower when I'm on the summit, but I'm still speaking coherently enough. So perhaps it wasn't just a placebo effect. <laughs> but, um, a lot of the training was done in the gym. Um, you know, weight training, uh, cardio training, and then on the weekends, again, getting out into the mountains. Now, did, did, uh, well, well, let me ask this. So, so now that you've, you've accomplished five of the seven summits and you're, you might as well do it. You only got two more. I mean, what's two more? Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right or, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, but you, you've, you've accomplished these things. And again, I, I refer back to us as being athletes and wanting to seek that, that high and that feeling. And even if it's just the training part of it, how do you now channel that energy? What now, and maybe I should have asked you what your next venture is, but if, how do you take that excitement and that drive to go get that and, and funnel it into your everyday life? 
Sure. Um, so again, a lot of the training is uh, I'm kind of living in a concrete jungle these days, being in uh, grad school in D.C. So there's not very many mountains around here. I tried going down to Shenandoah last week to do a little training, but um, beautiful park, but it was a little disappointed uh, ultimately. Uh but yeah, a lot of um, mountaineering is months, sometimes years of training for only a few weeks. You know, you're, you're building up your muscle mass, you're building up your cardio ability just to destroy it on the mountain uh, because especially in the death zone, human beings deteriorate. So that's the, the point at which we can't acclimate any further. So in terms of... Um, Goals right now. I'm looking at perhaps next fall doing. Uh, they call it a two first, so doing two eight thousand meter peaks uh, in one one adventure, one expedition, essentially. Uh, but you really you kind of have to focus on just hitting that the first one, and if the second one, if it if it feels right, you go for it. So I really like to still do Choi Oyu uh, and Shishapangma in Tibet uh, and in possibly do them without oxygen. I'd really like to see what I'm capable of. Climbing without oxygen in those altitudes is a completely different ballpark. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a very different type of climbing. Uh, and it really, again, you're not, you can't acclimate above 26,000 feet. So you just, you acclimate as high as you can and then you scurry up and you come right back down. Right. Holy cow. Well, now you're, you're no longer active duty. Uh, you're actually you you are in the reserves at the at the present moment, uh, but once grad school is over, where where is your career going? Where, where do you want it? To, where do you want to take it? Sure. So I did counterterrorism, um, tar lethal targeting when I was in uh, when I was active duty. I'd like to continue that. I'm in grad school for security studies, um, so for terrorism and substate violence. Um, and I'd really like to go back to Africa um, and work in the counterterrorism field there. So I've been working kind of off and on in Africa since 2010, um, starting with a, an internship in the Republic of Congo. Uh, and then I've kind of bounced around, um, as I told you earlier, with uh, the State Department. So I, I just finished um, four months in Ethiopia in Addis Ababa working the U.S. mission to the African Union, which was a very fulfilling role um, as kind of um, taking over in a, a FSO, a foreign uh, service officer capacity. So we'll see. There's a lot of different uh, avenues to pursue counterterrorism, which is unfortunately profitable in this day and age. I wish it wasn't. I wish it was a field that was going away. Uh, but in the current uh, security climate, it's not. So. Mm -hmm. Well, as we as we wrap this up here, I, I would love your insight on for for someone who's listening here who's saying, "Hey, you know, I um, as a former athlete uh, or or non athlete, but just as someone who has a drive to accomplish particular goals." And I just I just you know I gained from you just this hunger to push your own limits and, and push the boundaries to see what you're capable of uh, as an athlete. Um, as as uh, you know, someone who's looking to make an impact in this world beyond uh, just your own sphere of, of influence and, and what you've done in the military and and uh, your your goals for post grad school, but I, I just what is it something that is just intrinsically part of you to go out and do these things, or do you have is it something that you you've learned to grow to push boundaries, you've learned to grow to 
want to be someone who's doing something truly unique beyond what what others thought was possible? Uh, I think both. If it's a little bit of a dichotomy, but I I always had this fire to kind of push myself and see what I was capable of. Uh, but even if somebody feels as though they they don't and they're kind of stuck in a rut, uh, I'd encourage you to get out of your comfort zone. Again, most growth comes from uh, the unknown. From It doesn't have to be austere environments like mountaineering. You don't have to be at 29,000 feet to, to see what you're capable of. Uh, but just getting outside your comfort zone through travel, through a volunteer experience, through uh, challenges that, that may just want to Put a little bit of fear into you. I think that's really healthy uh, in terms of um, of self development. And, and you brought up you brought up something that that I I know is prevalent with a lot of human beings: fear. Yeah. When you are pushing your boundaries and what you're capable of uh, as someone under military, or now someone who's who's taking on a, a something that for someone like me, I'm going wow, counter terrorism is pretty frightening. Uh, and scaling 29,000 foot peaks. I, I know fear is there. How do you handle and manage when fear creeps in? Uh, I harness it, so to speak. So that anxiety, that, um, that stimulation of the, the parasympathetic system, the fight or flight reflex, uh, it doesn't have to control you. You can control it. So taking a deep breath, um, focusing on, um, especially in mountaineering, I kind of one step at a time. So sometimes it's just 20 feet up the mountain if it's a really steep pitch um, or just focusing on the route that, that one day. So taking in manageable chunks and not looking at the entire mountain uh, as a goal. Just I'll, I'll get through today or I'll, I'll get up that, that one, um, that little crux in, um, in the rock climbing route or, or whatnot. So I think humans have incredible capabilities, but if you let fear define your capabilities, you're really doing yourself a disservice. So the, the mind controls the body, as, as you know, uh, and the human body and the mind together. If, if you push them both, if you tell yourself, I, I'm not going to quit, I'm going to get up this, you'll surprise yourself with what you can accomplish. Do you have a particular practice that you have is a habit for uh, for your, your your thoughts, for your mindset, for you know, managing your, your fears or or your um, your objectives. Sure. Uh, sometimes it's distraction. Nice. <laughs> so uh, other climbers will argue with me, but I like having a good playlist on the mountain. I like my my. I have a little um, uh, iPod Shuffle, the little tiny things that came out 10 years ago, still use them. They work pretty well, uh, on the mountain. Um, so, you know, getting a good song, getting a good, um, you know, focusing on it, um, as more of a workout and just going to push through this. Uh, but also I've kind of learned to harness pride as well. So thinking how proud I'll be when this is of myself or, or others, people I care about, such as my parents, how proud they'll be when I accomplish this. Um, it's kind of a primordial way, so to speak, of, of uh, getting through something. But pride is a very powerful emotion. So it's just an option. It's something I use when uh, it's four in the morning and it's you still got a long way to go to get up. Mm-hmm. 
get that playlist kicking. Absolutely. (laughs) I love it. This has been a fascinating story to to try to understand and and get a sense of of, uh, how you got yourself on a mountain as big as Everest. And uh, and then, of course, the mountain that you're climbing now towards the work that you're going to be doing, hopefully in Africa. Um, How much longer of grad school do you have? Uh, one more year. So I have um, about halfway through the fall semester, and then I have spring semester to get through. So yeah, see, a lot of lot of opportunities. If, if anyone has any questions or thoughts, or would love to just uh, connect with you, are are you on social media? Is there a way for someone to to reach out and kind of follow your process, follow your journey? Sure. So I'm actually transitioning. I uh, The last few climbs I've done um, have been through USX, which is U.S. Expeditions and Explorations, which is a 501c3 uh, that focuses on veterans. Uh, and myself and a couple of my business partners are actually launching our own based out of the Seattle area next year. Uh, and our focus is more getting minority populations out into the mountains. Unfortunately, climbing has kind of been dominated by white males. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's time to really like to open the doors and and take some of the barriers down that are prohibiting uh, some other demographics from getting out into the mountains. Um, So that and then combining, we've done a lot of um, research expeditions lately. Um, Most recently, Denali, uh, this past May, I led a team up um, where we wore these little... um, little EKG devices over our hearts while we were climbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they measured the, um, essentially, our, well, the EKG, so measuring our heart rate, but we were trying to correlate um, parasympathetic and sympathetic systems to um, to altitude, so how we acclimated um, and the, their effect on those systems. So uh, right now you can, I, I guess, follow me on Facebook through USX, but I will be transitioning uh Next year, hopefully, to Two Pines. Two Pines. Two Pines, yep. And I'm, I'm fascinated. What, I guess, first question is, what, what is, if, if climbing has been dominated by white males, what has been the, bar- the barriers to, for minorities to get on, you know, to get up on mountains? And number two, how, how do you get to those communities and get them involved? Sure. Uh so we like to think of mountains as, as a really um, a good way to reconnect with yourselves, to, to get out of your concrete um, prison, so to speak, in, in the uh, cities and really connect with nature, but also uh, learn your own capabilities, as, as I've spoken to. Uh, so I think some of the barriers that have um, reasons why is, is there just historically haven't been these populations out there. They're, it's very expensive. To get into mountaineering, um, you know, my down suit alone is twelve hundred dollars. My I don't have a pair of boots that are less than five hundred. Uh, so it, you know, it's very expensive. Um, and a lot of the sports that j- people generally do are sports that people in their networks do. So I grew up swimming. Most of my friends were swimmers, uh, and you know, breaking into a new sport um, can be a little unnerving. It can be a little bit uh, overwhelming. So we're going to be doing some outreach programs, some local climbs. Uh, and then there's another part of um, Two Pines that I'm very excited about, which is the psychology part. So we have a research director um, who was just on Denali and was on Everest with me, um, who will be kind of monitoring. Um, I'm sure you've heard of flow psychology, where during sports, people um, 
essentially reach this optimal point uh, where they're they're in their flow states, where they're just so engaged by what they're doing. Um, it's just it's such a powerful um, emotional connection to the sport. So we're going to try to incorporate that into uh, to some of our expeditions. So kind of a, a unique and exciting concept, I think. I love it. Well, we'll keep our eyes out for you for sure. Well, uh, thank you so much for, for spending time and, and sharing your story and wishing you all the best uh, finishing school and summoning new mountains and uh, with your new ventures. <laughs> very good. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Excellent. Thank you, Elise. Thanks. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen into the Recovering Athlete Podcast. You know, this after I had a chance to talk with Elise and and hung up the phone with her and I thought a little bit more deeper about the conversation and I just it, it's amazing how badass she is you know there's there's nothing small it seems like she's doing uh, the work that she's done in the military and forging new new paths there to the work that she's doing uh, beyond getting her masters uh, climbing the tallest peaks uh, in the world it's just these humongous big feats that she's going after and she takes it with such humility and such it just kind of trickles off her back like yep it's no big deal but i tell you what this is where i believe she takes her intrinsic gifts and skills this this drive this uh, passion for for going big and actually executing it in real life and i think that former athletes we we have a lot of these things in us and yet we we left it back on the field or we left it back in the swimming pool or whatever on the bike or in Lisa's case the, the mountain and we, we kept it there as if that's the only places to live and it's in it inspired me to make sure that I am bringing those things forward with me because they translate over yes we can talk about it in the language of sport but a lot of those pieces that that, that drive that the, the goal setting the the, the hustle uh, the determination that you know that never give up the, the grind whatever the term you want to put to it we we've had it and we've we've done it as athletes but sometimes we forget to bring that over into the next phase and i think she's a really good example of doing just that and you can see it in these big accomplishments that uh, that she's had so it's a reminder for you and i to take those those pieces of who we were as an athlete let's bring them forward because we have them in us and it's up to us to, to bring them forward and actually act upon them and see how they fit and start to apply them into our area to, to perform at a level as a human being uh, and to accomplish the goals that we want. So anyway, just my two cents. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, if you have some feedback, some insight, by all means, I would love your five-star review on, on iTunes. Or simply message me at Cletus Coffee on all social channels. What do you think? Just some, some feedback. Do you have a guest that you think could inspire our audience here? Let me know. I love to connect with them and and uh, get them on board. So thank you again so much for for listening in. I really appreciate your your support in this. We'll see you next time. Everyone deserves to enjoy a McRib at least once in their lifetime. Because when you're this saucy and tangy and tasty, a life without one creates a serious case of FOMO. The McRib is back. 
Don't miss the classic you've been craving. Get a McRib, filet of fish or Big Mac and get another for a dollar or mix and match. Prices and participation may vary. Valid for item of equal or lesser value cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you're in winter's favorite town, the snow-covered mountains surround you. A historic Main Street charms you. And every day brings a new adventure. Welcome to Park City, Utah. Naturally, winter's favorite town. <sighs> Join the experience at visitparkcity.com.